Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The obvious reasons you're going to see a heavy emphasis and a spotlight on NATO's relationship with Russia. But I also think allies recognize that China and China of Russia together is increasingly a challenge that we're grappling with. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard the US ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith, speaking to Politico's Lily Beyer at NATO headquarters here in Brussels. You'll hear more from Smith later in the podcast on Russia's war in Ukraine and where the US thinks NATO should go from here at this pivotal moment for transatlantic relations. Also in this episode, Angela Merkel returns to the stage, literally. As Bundeskanzlerin, das ist auch ein schönes Gefühl. Und, um, After six months of silence since stepping down as German Chancellor, Merkel gave an extensive interview in front of an audience in a Berlin theatre this week. Among the topics she tackled were her own policies emboldened Russia to attack Ukraine. We'll also get into a big controversy here in Brussels over a European Commission plan to unlock billions of coronavirus recovery funding for Poland, even though Brussels says the Polish government has undermined the rule of law. So let's get into that now with our podcast panel in our Brussels studio, senior reporter Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And in Berlin, Chief Europe correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hi. So, Lily, I thought we'd start with you and catch up on a story that developed last week and has been rumbling on uh, this week. And that's a decision by the European Commission, by the Commission president, above all, Ursula von der Leyen, to approve a plan that would allow Poland to get its hands on billions of euros in coronavirus recovery funding, uh, money that has been withheld up until now. Can you give us the kind of potted summary here of how much money is at stake, why it hasn't been released up until now, and what uh, Ursula von der Leyen is proposing in terms of how to deal with this? So we're talking here about over 35 billion euros worth of grants and loans from the EU's Coronavirus Recovery Fund. This money has been basically stuck for months and months. Poland and the Commission could not come to a compromise, but a number of factors, including the war in Ukraine, have led both sides to come to an agreement. But this agreement has been incredibly controversial. Under the deal, Poland would have to implement a series of judicial 
judicial reforms that the commission says would bring it in line with European standards. But the commission's critics say that by coming to this deal and by making compromises with Warsaw, the commission is actually undermining the position of the Court of Justice of the European Union, which has ordered Poland to implement certain things immediately, and also not fully addressing the problems with the independence of the judiciary in Poland. So some of this is quite technical, but for advocates of the rule of law, uh, we are talking about very core issues. Right. And the big picture here is exactly this uh, ongoing, I was going to say long running dispute. It probably is long running now. It's been going on for years between the EU institutions and Poland over the rule of law. You know, the kind of basic version of this story is that the Polish uh, nationalist government, the Law and Justice Party, have implemented a series of what they call judicial reforms, but what most critics and what uh, the EU institutions basically describe as putting the courts under political control or certainly undermining judicial independence. So uh, the EU institutions, and particularly in particular the Commission and the Parliament, have both said this violates EU standards, it actually violates the Polish constitution, uh, some of these measures according to them. And it's actually funny, you know, so much has happened in recent years. You know, I remember how big a deal it was when the European Commission took the step of triggering the so-called Article 7 procedure, which was a huge deal. The first time they'd ever done this against a member state. It's a kind of censure procedure, which can ultimately lead to a country basically being kind of suspended from the EU or not able to vote uh, in EU bodies. It hasn't got that far. In fact, that procedure has kind of gone nowhere, partly because a lot of member states are not willing to uh, really push this issue too hard uh, with Poland. But obviously, after everything that's happened in recent years, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, uh, that issue to an extent has gone on to the back burner. But now we do see it come to the foreground. And as you say, Lily, it is partly as a result of of some of these more recent um, developments, if you like. So the pandemic has created this recovery fund. The war in Ukraine has cast Poland in a somewhat different light and given the European Commission, I think, an incentive to try and find a way to get this money flowing. Although, of course, the Commission stresses no money actually starts to flow until the Polish government has taken some measures. But one of the things that I thought was quite remarkable, Lily, something uh, you and other colleagues in the newsroom have reported on, is the extent of the rebellion even within the European Commission about this plan, even though... No money flows until the Polish government has met certain milestones. Uh, Give us a flavour of that. What's going on there? Who is rebelling and why inside the commission? It has been pretty incredible to watch uh, in over four years in Brussels. I don't remember any time when so many commissioners have made their kind of distress with commission decisions so clear. So Franz Timmermans, vice president of the commission, who actually led work on the rule of law under the previous commission, said in a written statement for the record internally in the commission that he, quote, disagrees with the fact that the legal order is being adjusted to the political reality instead of the other way around. Um, that's a very biting comment there from Timmermans. There are other people who've raised concerns, including the two commissioners currently working on rule of law issues. That's Vera Urova and Didier Reinders. Um, part of why they're unhappy is because even though formally Ursula von der Leyen has been repeating this message that no money will flow to Poland until reforms are implemented, if you actually read the fine print 
print, you will find that some money will actually flow before all the steps and all the remedies are in place. So this is what is controversial. Right. And we should say they have made their displeasure clear in in statements for the record, which have been leaked. So in other words, they've made this displeasure clear in in a kind of semi-public way. Having said that, the College of Commissioners has adopted this plan. So, you know, they could be accused of virtue signalling for ultimately saying they don't like it, but ultimately they have not stopped it. And we've had a bit of a flavour of this debate also in a public forum this week in the European Parliament with Ursula von der Leyen, you know, defending this plan. I know that some of you are skeptical, but let me assure that no money will be dispersed until these reforms are undertaken. The plan is public. So a first payment... And with some uh, members of the European Parliament, such as Sophie Intveld, the Dutch Liberal, you know, taking a very strong stance uh, against uh, von der Leyen. No less than 14 resolutions on the rule of law in Poland have been adopted by this House. They were all ignored by the European Commission. So what magical effect do we expect from number 15? The Commission ignores Parliament, the rulings of the highest European courts, the letters of dissent of five commissioners ignored, its own Article 7 procedure against Poland ignored, the calls from Polish civil society, warnings by judicial authorities in other member states ignored. Instead, President von der Leyen, you travelled to Warsaw last week for a shiny ceremony with the Prime Minister, who, as soon as you... Tell us what happens next now, uh, Lily. What are the steps that could ultimately lead to this money being released or, or not? So we're still waiting to see how Poland will actually implement the reforms. Of course, the member states themselves and the council also have a say. Uh, They need to greenlight the funding. But we are not expecting any obstacles to Poland getting some of this money, at least initially. Mm. Um, let's uh, move on to Lily I'm going to say to you also that you are free to leave us at any point I know you have to run to a briefing so if you want if you want to duck out now you can do that I will sorry about that all right thanks Lily okay so Lily is taking her headphones off and and heading out and Matt and I are uh, going to talk about Angela Merkel yeah it's like it's uh, 2018 again or something she made this quite extraordinary appearance. So first of all, we could, you know, the classic journalistic cliche here would be she broke her silence. So um, six months after leaving office, you know, during which time she really has not said very much publicly at all. Uh, she has popped up in, in a quite unusual setting, I would say, in, in this kind of um, public interview in a theatre in Berlin. Right, Matt? And, and one of the things I found, I wondered about is why she chose to do this because she doesn't have a book out. You know, there's no particular reason for her to suddenly pop up. But she has, of course, been the subject of quite a lot of criticism, particularly internationally, about her policy towards Russia and how much that contributed to the war in Ukraine, if at all. And so I guess, do you think that she, although she always kind of affects to not be bothered by this stuff, that she actually felt the need to kind of set the record straight as she would see it? I definitely think that was the reason. And I think that she is very much affected by criticism. And in in my dealings with her, I was often struck by how sensitive she was to criticisms from certain people. I remember when Paul Krugman won the 
Nobel Prize and came to Berlin and wrote a bunch of nasty columns about Germany and how it was treating uh, Southern Europe. She said in one unguarded moment that it was amazing the types of people who they would give the Nobel Prize to. So (laughs) I think that she definitely worries about her place in history. And I think that this was an attempt to tell her side of the story. But it was probably the most unguarded that I've seen her maybe ever as she submitted herself to uh, more than an hour long of questions from a journalist uh, from Der Spiegel who has been following her from the very beginning. And I think a lot of people would not be surprised by her answers necessarily. She defended her record, said that she did everything that she could. She doesn't have any regrets about the way she dealt with uh, Putin. Um, and she stands by the peace initiatives that she pursued between Russia and Ukraine and the Minsk process that she played a key role in. Mm. I mean, I was slightly surprised. I haven't watched all of it, so I'm, I'm just going by the coverage. But I was, it did feel very much a kind of, you know, je ne regrette rien. And I, and I was a bit surprised there wasn't maybe a bit more contrition or a bit more, you know, well, you know, I, I did the best I could at the time, but in hindsight, you know, I would do it differently. You know, did she actually give any ground at all? I didn't get the impression that she had any regrets, just the opposite. She, in fact, said on a couple of occasions during this long conversation that she actually felt good that looking back, she had done in her mind everything that she could have done and that this is the way things ended up. But it certainly wasn't her fault. It wasn't Germany's fault. She really points the finger at Putin, who obviously is the main uh, perpetrator here. But I think a lot of people would question whether her decision, for example, not to let Ukraine join NATO or put them on a path to join NATO in 2008, uh, a decision that she stands by, was the right one in retrospect. There's certainly a lot of of commentators, including senior diplomats from a number of Western countries who say now that if Ukraine had been put on that path with Georgia in 2008, the world would be a different place because Putin would never risk attacking a NATO country or even a country on its way into NATO. She pushes back on that and says that would definitely not have prevented a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. She actually went further and kind of said, actually, if we'd done that, Putin would have acted straight away or, you know, he would have done something very quickly afterwards, right? Because, I mean, Putin turned up at that Bucharest summit and basically threatened everyone, right, and told told people not to do it. And it sounded like that, you know, obviously played into it. But that's quite interesting. There's like like these two different versions of history, right, where she sees, she also uh, justified the, the Minsk peace accords as kind of saying, well, those things bought Ukraine time. Now, I can imagine if you're sitting in Ukraine and looking at this now, you know, you don't really see that as, as a great plus. But she's kind of arguing that Putin was, you know, going to do this sooner or later. There's a limit to what we could do. But in the meantime, you know, Ukraine has, you know, has been able to defend itself better, is it kind of, you know, has strengthened itself democratically. 
And, you know, like I say, it's these counterfactuals. You can't know what would have happened if things had been different. But is, is there, in terms of reaction, has there been anything interesting that you've seen in t- terms of how people have kind of responded to Merkel's re-emergence here? What has struck me is the degree to which Germans are still so focused on Merkel. And there just seems to be this sense of relief that she's still there, she's back, she's telling us everything is okay, it's not our fault, and everything is going to be all right. So she has sort of seamlessly slipped back into the famous Muti role, as they call it. A sort of mother of the nation. And everybody seems to be quite happy that she's still there. Yeah, it is just quite striking that... um I would say that despite all the controversy, a, a lot of it, some of it inside Germany, but also internationally, uh, yeah, there was just almost a kind of sense of calm or normality returning, right, with her with her re-emergence. It's quite striking. Well, there is a lot of upheaval now with the current government and especially the chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, who is facing a lot of criticism for his reaction to the war. And I thought it was very revealing in the conversation. At one point, she said that she has full trust in the current coalition and that if she ever felt the need to call somebody in the government and tell them that they were on the wrong path, she would, but she hasn't seen cause to do so yet. Wenn jetzt etwas passieren würde, das ist das, was mich beruhigt, wo ich sagen würde, es geht in die vollkommen falsche Richtung, dann kann ich sehr viele anrufen. Das musste ich aber noch nicht. Um. Which was really a very revealing look at how she sees her new role as ex-Chancellor. Right, almost as a kind of Aufpasser, right, to use a sort of German word, like somebody just keeping like the, an... Uh, the chairwoman of the board. Just kind of keeping an eye on things and, yeah, ready to intervene if anybody uh, goes off course. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Okay, we'll leave it there. Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up right after this, Lily's going to bring us our feature interview this week with the US ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith. Stay with us. 
to be made available for social rent over the next decade. We are here at NATO headquarters where officials are very busy getting ready for a historic summit in Madrid later this month, where leaders of the alliance's 30 countries will make big decisions on NATO's future strategy and force posture. And these decisions are being made as fighting continues in Ukraine and there's no end in sight to Russia's invasion. And to talk about all this today, we have a very special guest, U.S. Permanent Representative to NATO, Julianne Smith. Thanks so much for taking the time, Ambassador. It's my pleasure. Uh, to jump right into it, one of the major questions for leaders in Madrid will be how to adjust NATO's force posture in the East. And a group of Eastern allies such as Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have been pushing very hard for a permanent troop presence in the region. And on the other hand, there are also many people in this building who are arguing that uh, what those Eastern allies have in mind is simply not realistic or sustainable. Uh, where does the U.S. stand in this debate at this point? And are you willing to commit to permanently stationing U.S. troops in the eastern flank? Well, let me start by just noting all of the good work that's been ongoing since February. Even before Russia went into Ukraine on February 24th, the allies came together and collectively decided in that moment, a few weeks before the war started, to begin moving troops into Eastern Europe to reinforce NATO's eastern flank. That was the decision that we took together. Many nations are stepping up and sending naval forces, air forces, land forces into that neighborhood. And it's been amazing to watch the speed with which those forces were able to move into place and reinforce and also deter any possible Russian aggression against NATO territory. Now that we've got all of those forces in place. We are now at NATO HQ having a debate about what NATO should do over the medium and long term. That debate is ongoing. The idea is that by the time NATO leaders meet in Madrid at the end of June, we will come together and make a collective decision about where we're going now above and beyond what's already in Eastern Europe. But do you see what could be a possible landing zone in this debate? I know you don't have all the answers today, but do you see where the allies are coming, kind of what the common point could be? Well, the common point is that everyone appreciates that the security landscape has fundamentally changed in Europe writ large full stop. And that's because of the war that's ongoing in, in Ukraine. So allies collectively appreciate that the security needs of the allies in the East have changed and are evolving. So no one doubts that there's need for additional reinforcement. Where we have to debate is what that should look like in practice. One model, as you noted, is permanent basing. Another is what the U.S. often refers to and other allies refer to as persistent rotational presence where you're bringing troops in and out on a regular basis with no gaps in that presence that in many ways can do something similar in terms of signaling to Moscow and any other adversary not to even think about coming into NATO territory. So again, we'll have to see where this lands, but I do see a way out of it. I think because we all agree that the needs are serious and legitimate and genuine and that there are 
additional steps that allies can take, I think we'll bridge that gap and come up with an appropriate plan and an appropriate mix of forces. What is the advantage of the second model that you described versus the first model of a permanent basing? So when you have permanent basing, what the country delivering the troops needs to do is to ensure that those troops have the adequate infrastructure for not only the troops themselves, but their families. So that often requires building permanent infrastructure, whether it's housing for the troops and their families, whether it's associated um, recreational facilities, training facilities, there's all sorts of things that go with it. So obviously, in terms of permanent basing, the costs can be quite different than a rotational presence where the families do not accompany the troops that come through because they rotate over six months or a year and come in and out and are replaced by other troops after that. So it does have cost implications when you talk about rotational versus permanent, and that is one of the considerations. But there's also an added question that comes into the mix, and that's one of flexibility. When you're building a permanent base, it commits the nation in question to maintaining those forces there over the long term. Obviously, we operate now in a world where the security situation is in flux. We're grappling with multiple challenges around the world, and countries that are providing those forces do want to maintain some sort of flexibility. And by rotating troops through, it does give you some added flexibility that you wouldn't necessarily have with permanent basing. Now, again, I don't know where we're ultimately going to land in this debate, but those are some of the aspects that are on the table and part of the discussion. Moving on to a different subject that has caused a lot of concern at NATO HQ over the past weeks. Um, Sweden and Finland have recently applied for NATO membership, but the process has been stuck because Turkey unexpectedly raised some objections. So Turkish officials have been saying that they want Sweden and Finland to crack down on Kurdish groups and also allow for arms exports. Other people have raised the possibility that there may also be other issues here, including the the relationship with the U.S. How damaging is it to NATO for President Erdogan to publicly flaunt disunity at a time when uh, Russia is waging war in Ukraine? Well, look, let me let me start by saying there's consensus across the alliance, even with the concerns expressed by Turkey, that NATO's door should remain open. And that was a message that we sent to Moscow a couple of months ago, one that we've been intent on messaging the world in terms of NATO's open door policy. Secondly, I'll say, look, this alliance is deeply familiar with moments when a single ally or a group of allies raise their hand and say, time out, we have concerns, we'd like to debate this. NATO is an operation that is an organization that operates through consensus, and that's the bottom line. Everything NATO does, everything that happens in this alliance must be decided by 30 allies. So we will not be able to proceed until we address the concerns that Turkey has put on the table. But based on 73 years of experience of dealing with disagreements and debates inside the alliance, I am confident that we're going to get there at the end of the day and see Finland and Sweden join this alliance. Do you have a sense of what Turkey actually wants in this negotiation? 
Yes, we are in private discussions with them here at NATO HQ. They've also met separately with Sweden and Finland bilaterally and trilaterally. I won't get into the details of those discussions, but I think it's quite clear where Turkey has outlined some concerns and allies are working with them on on those details. Uh, Just for our listeners' background, um, in 2019, Turkey controversially purchased the Russia-made S-400 missile system, leading the U.S. to kick out Turkey from the F-35 fighter jet program and sanction the Turkish defense industry. Um, But Turkey has been pushing very hard to buy U.S. jets, um, the new F-16s. You said you won't get into too much detail, but I have to ask, um, are the F-16s part of this discussion? I'm not going to reveal anything that's ongoing behind the scenes, but I will emphasize that right now this is a conversation between Turkey, Sweden, and Finland, part one, and those conversations are ongoing. You've seen folks traveling back and forth among those three capitals. Part two is allies collectively are at the table listening to Turkish concerns and trying to address them, but that's probably all I can say at this point. Thank you. And now moving on to a subject that a lot of uh, NATO wonks are obsessed with these days, um, what is called the strategic concept. So ambassadors are now negotiating a document that will lay out uh, the alliance's strategy possibly for the next decade. This uh, document hasn't been updated for a long time. The world is quite different now. But there are some differences that we've been hearing about. Uh, One of these is that there are some allies who really want to shut the door on Russia and others who are saying, well, in this document, we should leave the door a little bit open in case maybe there's a change of regime in Moscow, a change of perspective, and maybe down the line in the future, there will be some room for dialogue. Where do you stand in this debate? I think what you're going to see, I can't say with any certainty because we're still negotiating the document. I think what I can say is that the language on Russia will be significantly different than the language on Russia from the 2010 version. I also can tell you that for the first time, I believe that China will be mentioned in the strategic concept. It did not appear in the 2010 version, and I think you're going to see more focus on that. You're also going to see a heavier focus on future challenges. The alliance is keen to address things like emerging and disruptive technologies, NATO alliance is talking about new domains, cyber and space. The alliance is talking about the challenge of climate change as it relates to national security. So this is going to be a document that feels very different and much more current than what we saw over 10 years ago. Some officials have been saying that Russia's invasion has distracted a bit from the question of China. Do you think that the document will end up presenting China as a threat? I think what we'll see is at the top, the emphasis will be on Russia for all the obvious reasons. I mean, Russia is conducting a war in Ukraine on European territory for all Again, the obvious reasons you're going to see a heavy emphasis and a spotlight on NATO's relationship with Russia. But I also think allies recognize that China and China of Russia together is increasingly a challenge that we're grappling with. Watching those two countries talk about NATO enlargement, watching those two countries now exercise together, watching how they're mirroring each other on their language as it relates to Ukraine indicates for us that this will be part 
of our future challenge set. And so because of that, you will see language on China, on likely on China-Russia as well. And I think we'll find the, the right balance. I don't think one comes at the expense of another because NATO is a Euro-Atlantic military alliance. Again, its focus right now is on Russia-Ukraine. But NATO also has shown a remarkable ability to flex, to be agile, to adapt to new challenges. And for that reason, NATO allies feel compelled to talk about what China is doing in and around the Euro-Atlantic area as well. Given what you've seen in, in this building and beyond over the past months, from your perspective, is this a different alliance than the alliance you had in mind when you were nominated for this job a year ago? Yes. I, I didn't anticipate when I was nominated in the summer of 2021. Of course, I had no idea that we would be facing the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. No one saw that coming. But it's been rewarding to come together again, to work each and every day with the allies, to watch us stand united in this critical, pivotal moment in the transatlantic relationship. And I'm really proud of my team. I'm, I'm proud of the alliance collectively and really uh, give thanks that I have the opportunity to serve here as ambassador. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks to Lily for bringing us that conversation with Julianne Smith. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Brought to you this week from self-isolation due to my second bout of COVID. So, public service announcement, it's still out there and it can still get you even if you've had it before and been triple vaccinated. So watch out. Next week's episode will be my last in the host's chair, so do join me then if you can, when we'll also have more details of our plans for the podcast in the months ahead. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And you can always contact the podcast team directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to Namratha Prasad and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.